You could turn your Bible to Isaiah 9. We'll look at the first seven verses again. Um, the text is also printed again in the bulletin. In the scriptures, um, in the scriptures, we're, we're talking about names, right? These are the names that are given to the Messiah. And names have great significance in the scriptures. Uh, people didn't just name their children something that sounded nice. Uh, a name that they've just been waiting to use because it's, a, it's cool or something. It's, um, <clears throat> uh, names have significance. Sometimes a name serves as a reminder of God's faithfulness to the parents. God was faithful to us in a certain way. We're going to name our children that so we remember that um, and proclaim that to others. Or a name indicates that child's place in God's story. You find that a lot in the scriptures. Or a name uh, sometimes describes something about what, what we hope to see for that person's life, or a name uh, shapes the identity of that person, or a name um, reveals something of a character of that person. Names are very important in the scriptures. And you know something very important is happening when God exercises his divine prerogative and uh, renames somebody. He does that sometimes. He says, your name was this, now it's going to be this. Okay, yeah, thanks. Um, <clears throat> but when God uh, gives someone a new identity and gives them a new name, it's an identity and a name that they remember, well, God has changed something about me uh, every time somebody addresses them, every time somebody calls them by that new name. And you know, something very important is happening when God does that, or, or when God shows up in advance and says, there's going to be a child born, and his name shall be called this. You're going to name him this. You know something important is happening. That's what's happening in our passage. The people of God needed a Savior. They didn't know exactly what they needed. God did. And God gave this word to Isaiah, the prophet, who foretold that there was going to be a child born, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those four names, that's what uh, are given in advance by God himself, indicating the identity and the nature and the work of the Savior, of the Christ. So this Advent, uh, we're looking at those four names or four titles. And today we're going to talk about the second one, about Christ being called Mighty God. So, um, so let's pray, and we'll read the scripture. Father, here we are on the other side of your sending your son into the world by a long ways. Isaiah was about 700 years before him, and here we are 2,000 years after he came into the world. And we still haven't gotten used to the fact. We still don't know everything about him. So we pray that you would teach us that you would shape our hearts. Even those of us who have been Christians for a long time, uh, we have ways in which we think we know who Christ is or who he should be. And here you are um, surprising us always. Surprise us with the gospel this morning. Surprise us with the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts as we consider it together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the first Avengers movie is uh, really fun. Uh, hopefully all of you have seen it by now, because, uh, you know, there's just spoilers or whatever. Uh, after, after several stories, movies that were made leading up to the first Avengers movie... Marvel came out with these, these stories, these other movies, uh, after several of them, about the individual comic book superheroes, like Captain America, or Iron Man, or Thor. Uh, in this movie, in the first Avengers movie, they all came together for their first big team-up, right, to save the world in battle against the forces of darkness. But when they first met, <clears throat> uh, there was a bit of scuffle, because they bunch of hotheads. <laughs> the mighty Thor swooped in with his flying hammer and his red cape, and Iron Man, clad in his high-tech suit of armor, uh, went flying out after him, out of, out of an airplane. And Captain America is putting on his parachute to jump out of the plane and catch up with these guys, because he can't fly. <clears throat> um, he needs a parachute. And Black Widow, <clears throat> who's piloting the aircraft, says, I'd sit this one out, Cap. These guys... Are, they, they come from legend. They're basically gods. They're basically gods. To which Cap makes this profound theological statement as he gives the epic reply, there's only one god, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. <laughs> it's great. It's so good. Uh, and then he jumps out of the plane. Um, in our passage, uh, the, mighty, the, the name Mighty God... The name Mighty God is given to the Messiah. It's given to the, the Savior. And it's a clear statement of his divine nature. This is who this one's going to be. He's going to be God himself. Mighty God. He's the one true God who's revealed himself to Israel and to the whole world through his relationship with Israel. And the language here, mighty, mighty God, indicates his strength in battle. That's sort of the context that that part of the name is usually seen in. He's mighty in battle. So when Isaiah announced that the one true God was coming in the flesh, 
to save his people in battle against the forces of darkness, it would have been easy to envision him as a superhero warrior, like these hotheads who are jumping out of the airplane to go pummel each other for a while before they save the world. Um, It would have been easy to envision him as a superhero warrior. When When you hear the mighty God is coming, coming to do battle, well, don't you think he'd have this colossal physique with giant rippling muscles, wearing battle armor, shining so bright that it's blinding and flinging lightning bolts and quaking the earth with his stride and wielding weapons that can penetrate any defense. That's who the world always pictures, this God who is mighty in battle to be. But when he arrived, uh, well, let's just say he didn't give the overwhelming impression that here was the mighty God, uh, the mighty God from legend, stuff of legends. He's no Ares, no Mars, he's no Thor, appearing in the heat of battle, taking the form of an invincible, strapping young man. It's puzzling. When he came, he had an entirely unremarkable appearance. Nobody ever just took the time to describe what he looked like. He was no war general. He wasn't even a soldier. He was just a carpenter. And a teacher. And kind of like a male nurse. And most puzzling was the fact that he was so vulnerable. So vulnerable. Perhaps even extraordinarily vulnerable. More vulnerable than most. The world didn't have to wait until his coming to be puzzled about this. The world didn't have to wait 700 years after Isaiah's prophecy to be puzzled about that. Because it's right there in Isaiah's prophecy. Verse 6. To us, a child. A child is born. A child whose name is Mighty God. Baby is not usually synonymous with power and might. There's a disconnect there for us. Nobody ever looked at a newborn infant and said, Behold, the personification of divine military strength. He's just a little baby. No, you look at the baby and you say, (laughs) Who's the cutie? You are. You know, goo-goo peekaboo, whatever. Because babies aren't mighty things. Babies are silly things. They're squishy and floppy and slobbery, absurd little things that even bring out the silliness in other people. You can't take a baby very seriously. Not if you're paying attention. The human infant is just about the weakest, most vulnerable being imaginable, ridiculously dependent. The human infant is ridiculously dependent upon parents compared to other creatures, and they remain dependent for much longer than most other creatures young. But this is the revelation of the one true God. He, as Psalm 24 says, and uses some of the same language here, the Lord, Yahweh, strong and mighty, The Lord, mighty in battle, is this vulnerable infinite. He is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, even in 
the vulnerability of his infancy. In fact, the complete vulnerability of his infancy is a beautiful picture of the vulnerability of his whole life, which is, in fact, exactly the reason why he's called the mighty God. He's not called the mighty God in spite of his vulnerability. Because with this God, true might, true power to save is not measured by the size of your muscles or by how long you can hold the fortress or by how many enemies you can hack down before you break a sweat. That's not the measure of this God's might. God's true power to save looks like setting us free from visions of power like that. Setting us free from such visions of power as that. God's true might is seen in his ability to deliver us from slavery to the false gods and from the power of the devil himself. The devil's kind of power. And that's what's pictured for us in the very context of Isaiah's prophecy. The people of Israel, this happens over and over again in their history, and God addresses it explicitly over and over again. They were frequently impressed by military strength. They were terrified of it when their enemies had it. They trusted in it for their own sense of security. They sought to make allies with other nations who had great armies to defend them against these other nations with great armies. They looked to advance their own interests through this military might. They looked to earthly powers for deliverance. But instead, they were overthrown and conquered by those very powers. The very people they sought to make allies with ended up turning around and swallowing them up. God said in Isaiah 10 that when he would save his people, they would no more lean on him who struck them, but would lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth and return to the mighty God. So no more of this dependence upon that kind of power that just turns around and bites you. And that's not just because uh, God's military might is greater than the greatest military power in the world. He isn't just saying, like, my military might, I'm going to crush those little nations and their little armies because my army is bigger and stronger in, in all those same ways. It's not, it's not because of that. It's because his might is an altogether different alternative, one that appears actually like weakness. It appears like weakness to all the world, and even to God's people. His might appears like weakness. In verse 4 of our passage, Isaiah calls to memory the day of Midian, when God brought an end to uh, the oppression that the Israelites were suffering <clears throat> at the hand of the Midianites and the Amalekites. And God used a coward. He used a coward, Gideon. And he whittled this mighty army of 32,000 down to 300. 300 of probably the dullest men that could be found to defeat the great armies of the Midianites and the Amalekites who filled this whole valley with their armies with a ridiculously small band just blowing trumpets and breaking jars and waving torches around in the dark. It's, it's comical. 
It wasn't that God infused the 300 with superpowers to defeat a larger army. It was, a, it was a joke. It actually was a complete joke. His kind of might made a complete mockery of their kind of might. Repeatedly through their history, God taught his people not to be enamored with earthly power, not to be dependent on military strength, not to fear it, or to rely upon it or ally themselves to it, not to think much of it, really. So when the Savior, the mighty God himself, came into the world, he rejected that vision of power entirely. He became fully dependent on his father like a little child, like we would say, like a naive child. He became utterly vulnerable, and that was the perfect revelation of his might, his kind of might. It was the mighty God who was born a silly, floppy baby, unable to care for himself for years. He's the mighty God. It was the mighty God who became an infant in a town where the infants were all about to be massacred. It was the mighty God who immediately became a political refugee on the run from the powers that be. It was the mighty God who wandered hungry in the desert for 40 days, just saying no to the devil, rejecting an alliance with the cosmic superpower and all the power that he had to offer. It was the mighty God who spent his days volunteering in the hospitals and serving in the soup kitchens. It was the mighty God who rode into his own city, which was occupied. He rode in on a donkey instead of on a war horse. It was the mighty God who lived under foreign rule, who didn't seek to lead a military coup against the empire, who submitted himself to the authorities and said, you should too. It was the mighty God who was arrested and beaten and mocked by the guys who did have the big strong muscles, by the guys who did have the swords and spears and war horses and chariots. It was the mighty God who made himself vulnerable even to the most humiliating death on the cross. Nobody ever looked at a man dying on a cross and said, Behold, the personification of divine might. But it's true, him. If you were there, you might have said that very thing, like the centurion, the soldier who, who recognized an altogether different kind of mighty God on the cross. The gospel is not a mighty God setting aside his might. The gospel is the story that reveals his might, his kind of might. The people standing at the cross taunted the mighty God because they expected someone who claimed to be the mighty God 
would have the ability to come down from the cross, the ability to protect himself from harm. You have the power to do that, at least. If you do that, we'll believe in you. But his altogether different kind of might is best demonstrated. It's best exercised precisely in becoming vulnerable, not just for vulnerability's sake, for love's sake, for love's sake, to become a baby for love's sake, to endure demonic temptations in the wilderness for love's sake, to go to the cross for love's sake, to open himself up to people who have always rejected him and who continue to reject him, to open himself up to that for love's sake, to be the champion, to resist the devil where we embrace the devil, we embrace the cosmic superpower to reject the devil's version of power on our behalf, to save us from our addiction to it, to save us from our fear of it. Sure, you could say that God's might means that he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. And what does that look like? That looks like clothing himself with meekness and humility. If he's got superhero powers, they're not invulnerability. They're vulnerable love and complete dependence in prayer. And those won't do you very well in fistfight. But those are the superpowers that saved his people from the cosmic forces of darkness. George Herbert, who's a great English poet, he has a a prayer that he would pray before preaching a sermon. And it's really long. It's like sermon-length prayer. But I'll just read a little bit of it. This is from his prayer before sermon. You have exalted your mercy above all things, and you have made our salvation, not our punishment, to be to your glory, so that when sin abounded... Not death, but grace superabounded. Accordingly, when we had sinned beyond any help in heaven or earth, then you said, Lo, I come. Then did the Lord of life, unable himself to die, contrive to do it. He took on flesh, he wept, he died. For his enemies, he died. Even for those who derided him then and still despise him. The Lord of life, unable to die, contrived to do it. He wins by losing, and so he'll win every time. That's the mighty God come in the flesh, his divinity seen perfectly in his humble humanity. That's Jesus. He's exactly the kind of Savior we needed, even if he's not the Savior anybody expected. Who's a mighty God? Anything like him. This is not the mighty God of our imaginations. Isaiah, later in his prophecy, envisions him wearing the armor of God. He is a soldier. He is a warrior. He does wear armor. God's own armor. But it's not made of steel and leather. It says in Isaiah 11, With righteousness he shall judge the poor 
and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And as Isaiah 59, he says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. So it's with this armor, righteousness and faithfulness, meekness, that he did battle with the forces of darkness in order to liberate his people from the devil's dominion, from the devil's kind of power, set us free from it. And it's with the same armor that we're called to do battle, the same kind of armor, his own armor, against the same enemy, and in the very same way. Paul evokes the same imagery, and he applies it to God's people in Ephesians 6, that armor of God passage, where he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, not in earthly might, his kind of might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's our main enemy. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. If we did, we would probably say, you should beef up and become proficient with the sword. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying, becoming dependent at all times in the Spirit. So when we become strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might, and we put on His armor, we don't fortify ourselves over and against flesh and blood to do physical battle. We don't look to that to answer questions for us, to answer our problems. We make ready to stand against the cosmic superpowers, to reject an alliance with the devil and with his version of power. We do not fear military power. We do not entrust ourselves to military power for our ultimate good. We embrace the mighty God's way of vulnerability for love's sake. We entrust ourselves to him and to his very strange salvation that's seen on the cross. We open ourselves to him so that he can free us from our addiction to the devil's power. We open our lives up in love and we become dependent in prayer. We become like little children appearing naive and silly in the world's eyes. We have the same humble mindset which is ours in Christ. We look not just to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Consider them more significant than ourselves. Serve them. We make ready to win by losing, entrusting ourselves to the one who's already led the way to that kind of victory 
We proclaim the gospel as we do it. We proclaim the gospel of his victory. So look to Jesus, who is the mighty God, and be strong in the strength of his might, his kind of might. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have a lot to learn about your ways and um, about your Son, our Savior, about his nature and his work. And every time we look and every time we see you, every time we hear about you and your word, we're fascinated and we're overthrown and we're delighted and we're challenged and we're lifted up. We thank you that uh, Jesus is this upside-down kind of mighty God. We thank you that he came in the flesh, even as a little baby, to overturn all our expectations, all of our preconceptions about, about what real power is. We thank you that his work has been to save us from our addiction to the worldly versions of power that the devil offers us. We pray that you would teach us what that means in each of our lives. Teach our children what that means in their lives. Teach us to follow you in your way of vulnerability for love's sake and dependence on God in prayer. We pray this in your name and for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.